Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Wisani Matabula and Figilele Nwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the South our African leaders gather in Mauritania for AU summit. Tanzania and Zimbabwe vow to strengthen bilateral relations and Interpol calls for strong coalition against international terror. In economics news, Southern African Customs Union summit gets underway in Khaburoni. In our sports news, Senegal crash out of the World Cup. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Libyan commander Khalifa Haftar has declared victory against rivals, including local fighters and jihadists in the city of Derna. In a televised speech, he addressed gratitude to the Libyan army and the people of Derna for standing together with the army in their war to liberate the city from what he termed darkness. Haftar also accused the international community of turning a blind eye to the supply of arms to terrorist organizations in the country while refusing to arm the Libyan army and lift the arms embargo. Aid workers have called for security and safe passengers to get food, water and medicines to millions of people after a peace deal aimed at ending conflict in South Sudan was signed by warring parties. The United Nations says tens of thousands of people have been killed and one in three South Sudanese have been uprooted from their homes. The framework agreement signed by President Kiir and rebel leader Rahik Machar comes ahead of a final settlement that would allow access to humanitarian aid, prisoners to be freed and a transitional unity government to be formed. The political party funding bill in South Africa, which would prohibit parties from accepting funds from foreign governments and donors, is a step closer to becoming law. The bill passed through the National Council of Provinces, the NCOP, by an overwhelming margin after being adopted by the National Assembly two months ago. It also seeks to regulate private funding of political parties. It will now be sent to the President to sign into law. NCOP Chairperson Tandi Mudise announced the result of the vote. Honourable members, 41 members have voted in favour. One member has voted against. We have no abstentions. Honourable members, because the majority of the members have voted in favour of the bill, I declare that the bill has been agreed to in terms of Section 75 of the Constitution. The African Union summit got underway in Mauritania under the theme Combating Corruption, addressing a ministerial council. A U Commission chairperson, Musa Faki Mohammed, challenged member states to implement the report by the Tabumbeki panel on illicit flows. Mohammed says leaders must stop paying lip service to the fight against corruption and take action. May I just see this opportunity to stress once again uh, the importance uh, that uh, the, the follow-up of the recommendations of the Tabumbeki panel on the illicit financial flows. 
Africa loses a minimum of $50 billion per year because of these illicit flows, and it is evident that if these uh, resources were available, it would greatly help uh, its development. We should stop uh, making just statements and mere statements in order to go into concrete action and to fight against corruption. And finally, a gunman has opened fire at a local newspaper office in the U.S. state of Maryland, killing five people and injuring others in what police say was a targeted attack. Staff at the Capital Gazette in Annapolis say the attacker, armed with a shotgun and smoke grenades, shot through a glass door into the newsroom. Reports say the suspect has been named as Gerard Ramos, who unsuccessfully sued the newspaper group in 2012 for defamation. Local acting police chief William Cramp says the gunman surrendered to officers without a struggle. This person was prepared today to come in. This person was prepared to shoot people. His intent was to cause harm. And the investigative part of this is going to be thorough and it's going to take some time. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. African Union members will have to find a way to break an impasse on a proposed import levy to fund its activities. The continent's three largest economies, South Africa, Egypt, and Nigeria, have expressed reservations towards the levy. They say some of the countries are already burdened with current financial obligations linked to the African Union. As the summit gets underway in Mauritania, the African ministers of finance will also debate ways of ending corruption. Sarah Kamani takes a look at what's likely to be discussed at the summit. Previous reports by the African Union indicate that the continent loses $150 billion every year to corruption. A further $50 billion leaves Africa as illicit financial flows, according to a report by former South African President Thabo Mbeki. This against $20 billion in foreign aid to sub-Saharan Africa. Chairman of the African Union Commission, Musa Faki Mahamat, says to realize the ambitions of Agenda 2063, Africa must win the fight against corruption. We should stop uh, making just statements and mere statements in order to go into concrete action and to fight against corruption. The member states are being challenged in order to take the necessary measures as demanded by the situation and fulfill the aspirations of our peoples for good governance. If corruption is not uh, fought and uh, controlled, then the cohesion of our societies and the viability of our states will be dearly affected. He also wants African countries to embrace proposals put forward by a committee led by the African Union chairperson, President Paul Kagame of Rwanda, to make the African Union self-dependent. The institutional reform in which our union is uh, involved, in fact, uh, makes uh, the improvement of the implementation of a decision a priority action. 
upcoming elections in Zimbabwe, the political changes in Ethiopia as well as the security situation in the country will be discussed when African leaders meet in Mauritania. Zimbabwe says last weekend's attack will not deter the country in its endeavor to strengthen democracy. Dr. Sibusiso Moyo is the country's foreign affairs minister. There is the threat which faces Africa uh, and any other member state in Africa can transcend into any other part of the continent. And therefore, we must, as a continent, be able to deal with such kind of situations. South Africa shared the same sentiments. Lindiwe Sisulu is the International Relations Minister for South Africa. We have a resolution that we will stop guns in 2020 in, in, in Africa. We have bound ourselves as South Africa, having uh, acceded to the seat of the UN Security Council for 2019-2020 to make sure that we do push that agenda forward. So we have a huge responsibility and um, we would need to work out the milestones whether or not we'll be able to achieve the, you know, no guns by 2020 and it's 2018 already um, so we have a very tight uh, time frame around which to work and uh, we are seeing um, an increase in areas where we had not previously had violence we had not had violence in Zimbabwe we had not had as violence in the public space like in Ethiopia so we're very concerned about the new form of how violence is manifesting itself also on the summit's agenda is the progress made on the establishment of the continental free trade area. 44 countries signed the agreement in Kigali in April this year, setting the stage for the formation of the world's largest free trade area. Sarah Kimani, Mauritania. The FIFA World Cup has caused thousands Rather, it's 8.09 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa as well as 11925 kHz on the 90 meter band to Southern Africa. Tanzania and Zimbabwe have agreed to strengthen relations in all spheres of government. This came out during a meeting between President Emerson Nagagwa of Zimbabwe and his Tanzanian counterpart John Magufuli in the capital Dar es Salaam yesterday. Our reporter Gabriel Zakaria has more from Dar es Salaam. Zimbabwe and President Emerson Mnangagwa, who touched down in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, for a two-day state visit, assured his counterpart, President John Magufuli of Tanzania, that his government will continue promoting and enhancing the relationship that has existed for many years in all spheres between the two countries. President Munangagwa, who took power through a military takeover last November 2017 after the resignation of his predecessor, Robert Gabriel Mugabe, told his counterpart, Zimbabwe and Tanzania, will continue to work together to enhance cooperation and promote peace and development in Africa. My visit to Tanzania is not only a reminder of the rich content of our shared history, 
but also affords us an opportunity to craft a brighter future for our two countries. It is indeed, Your Excellency, a great pleasure and honor to be in this beautiful city of Dar es Salaam. I remember some 50 or more years ago, when I was a young man, a young student, I came here in 1963 and 64, and we opened our first Frelimo um, camp, military camp at Bagamoyo. We now must boldly march together in a new struggle to grow, modernize, and develop our economies as well as empower our people so that our countries take their rightful place in the global economic. Tanzania's bold, committed, and unflinching support during Zimbabwe's liberation struggle was pivotal, especially when the enemy dug in for the long haul. Your role in training our Zanla Kadas, Zipra Kadas, made all the difference, and for that, we shall forever and forever remain grateful. Dr. Bernard Achiula is a senior lecturer at the College of Diplomacy and International Relations in Dar es Salaam, who says the visit of Mnangagwa is very crucial to Tanzania. Yes, it is a very important visit because it shows the strength relationship we have between Zimbabwe and Tanzania. And secondly, for himself, you know, he lived in Tanzania yeah, when he was a young man and the prepared to fight for independence of Zimbabwe. So he's coming back to his second home. He learned all the taxes of, of, of fighting the colonialism. And for us Tanzanians, it is an honor because we have always been together with Zimbabwe and even the former President Mugabe was always fond of mentioning the father Mugabe. President John Magufuli's sentiments that Zimbabwe's peace is good for Tanzania and Africa as a whole, as he congratulated Mr. Munangagwa for the tranquility during the period of the transition, serve as a great encouragement to the people of Zimbabwe who want to see the national cohesion being upheld. The official visit of President Emerson Munangagwa to Tanzania will improve diplomatic, historical, social and economical bilateral relations between the two countries. President John Magufuli of Tanzania explains One of our role is to encourage our people to work together and invest their business in our countries and urge our ministries to work together as well in promoting tourism and attract visitors to come and enjoy our natural resources. President Mnangagwa has told me previously that his country enjoys our services offered by our port in Dar es Salaam since it is more effective compared to other ports. It is my sincere hope that if all we have agreed could go well, our economic relationship will flourish and our both countries will benefit from each other. We have also agreed to resume our joint commission and encourage our business people from both countries to meet and see how they can work together. Before concluding his two-day tour on Friday, President Mnangagwa will visit the Kaole Arts College based in Bagamoyo, Coast Region, 45 kilometers away from the commercial city of Dar es Salaam. During the colonial era, Kaole Arts College, which is located at Bagamoyo in Coast Region, was a training center of liberation fighters from the southern part of Africa, with the President Mnangagwa being one of the beneficiaries. Reporting for Channel Africa in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, this is Gabriel Zakaria.
Join Channel Africa on the 17th of July as we bring you a live broadcast of the Nelson Mandela Lecture by former U.S. President Barack Obama. Make a date with Channel Africa on the 17th of July as we celebrate Nelson Mandela's centenary birthday. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. It's 816 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Everybody has a role to play in the fight against terrorism and a strong coalition is needed if societies everywhere are to overcome the scourge. As according to Jürgen Stock, chief of the international crime fighting organization Interpol, who is one of the high profile officials attending the first ever global conference on counterterrorism, at UN headquarters this week. Apart from the threat on the battlefield and urban streets, there was rising concern about the capability of terrorists to damage major installations such as power grids, banking systems and other internet-based vital systems. Stock elaborates. Terrorism has become a global issue. Um, It has become more international, more complex than ever, and that requires a strong coalition against the networks of of terrorism. And uh, the United Nations are naturally, since many, many years, a strong partner uh, of Interpol. We are both supporting our member countries to be more successful in the fight against uh, international terrorism and organized crime. And this um, conference is about strengthening our partnerships, for instance, with the UN Office um, for Counterterrorism, with the uh, UN um, Counterterrorism Executive Directorate. These are just two partners um, uh, and we have a lot of of joint projects going on currently but it's also an opportunity to share best practice member countries come together they report about their efforts Uh, it's about sharing experience sharing knowledge but at the end it's making our global network against crime stronger and the most important point is that we inform each other on relevant information that is needed at the front lines of policing because terrorists and criminals are definitely taking benefit from globalization. I've got two words from you here, building strong coalitions and then information sharing. In your experience, on a practical level, how challenging has this been to build an effective coalition against crime in a global sense and then having the information come where people can use that information to counter terrorism? I mean, no country and no region can fight these phenomena in isolation. It requires strong partnerships, mainly to exchange relevant information. Information is the key asset of the work of the criminal police specifically, or the police in general. So our key asset is the availability of information, and that's actually what Interpol is about. We have a a global communication, secure communication system in place that is called I-24-7, that connects 192 member countries, police services, all around the world and provides a platform which is supported by the United Nations uh, through UN General Assembly resolutions, several UN Security Council resolutions are uh, encouraging member countries to use this capabilities that Interpol provides, this global network. Uh, We are running 17 databases to identify criminals and, and terrorists, but this information needs to be accessible at the front lines of policing, so we are further developing if you may say, a global early warning system against terrorism and and organized crime. 
And once again, the UN is a, is a great supporter, is a great partner, and of course the member countries. The UN and Interpol, we are serving the same member countries, of course, and this conference here in New York uh, in these days is a wonderful opportunity and an important opportunity to strengthen our law enforcement network as well. I know Interpol is particularly concerned about foreign terrorist fighters and you are chairing a session or you have chaired a session uh, to combat the evolving threat of these foreign terrorist fighters. What are the main challenges in addressing the dangers and the risks that foreign terrorist fighters pose globally? I think the main challenge is the international dimension and it's the, the complexity of the issue. In the past, terrorism has mainly been a national or regional issue in, in some of our member countries. Today it has become a global issue and this is still growing, um, this issue. What do I mean? We have had the issue of the so-called foreign terrorist fighter. You mentioned that. Um, so fighters who were joining into the conflict zone in Syria, Iraq from more than 100 countries um, we have been building a database with the support of our member countries that now contains more than 40,000 profiles of these foreign terrorist fighters. Why is it important to have access to this information? Because the foreign terrorist fighters, also after Daesh um, has lost most of its territory in Syria and Iraq, they are now traveling back to their home countries. That's one option. Another option is that they are joining uh, other conflict zones around the world, in, in, in Africa, for instance, or in Asia, or in, in Europe. So they are, they are traveling and they are connected. Can you give us one example of this success case where a foreign terrorist fighter has been stopped and when they are stopped, how are they prosecuted or dealt with so that they, don't, they are not less, let loose to go somewhere else and go and commit uh, these terrorist crimes? We have many examples. For instance, if a terrorist attack is executed, that we do crime scene analysis. We encourage our member countries to collect evidence. It could, for instance, be DNA. We have several cases where DNA um, in a crime scene was collected uh, from a suicide bomber, for instance, and this information was put into Interpol's DNA database. And so the information is accessible to all 192 member countries. And we have some of these success stories where these DNA led to identification of a terrorist in another continent. For instance, an attack that happened in Afghanistan or in Syria or Iraq, and uh, a suspect was identified because of a, of, a, of a border check, for instance, in Europe. How successful are you now in 2018 compared to, say, 10 years ago? We are much more successful because member countries are more and more contributing their relevant information into our databases, and we are very successful in further developing um, our network of information, not just to national central contact points, but also to critical border stations. Let me ask you about protection of critical infrastructure, because I hear that is one thing that is of concern. Nuclear plants, power plants, banking systems. Do you have evidence or uh, suggestions that terrorists could be planning to attack these major installations in countries around the globe? I mean, we still terrorists mainly using very simple means, if I may say. We have had the, these many incidents where, where terrorists were using just knives or they were using cars and, and trucks um, to attack people on the street or in restaurants or in bars or police officers or soldiers. So this is still mainly the, the main way they conduct their terrorist attacks, but we know that they are also dealing with other modi operandi.
That was Jürgen Stock, a chief of the international crime-fighting organization Interpol, speaking to Ben Mallow. It's 8.23 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa will this coming Monday kickstart the commemoration of Corporate Wellness Week. Medical experts say a healthy workplace is key to ensuring productivity among employees. According to the World Health Organization, the average person spends a third of their adult life in the workplace. It's thus important that the workplace is somewhere that employees can function at their peak. To speak to us more about this, we are joined on the line by Nicole Breen, Project Leader for Information and Awareness at the South African Federation for Mental Health. Good morning and thank you so much for joining us, Nicole, on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, how would you describe a healthy workplace? Well, according to the World Health Organization, um, this would involve workers and managers um, coming together to continuously improve and promote aspects such as health, safety and well-being of all employees and to make the workplace sustainable. Now, how much attention do most uh, organizations pay um, to providing employees with uh, healthy work environments? The The short answer is not enough when it comes to psychosocial support. Most companies have a greater focus on occupational health and safety, but their responsibility doesn't end there. Instead, it ought to extend to aspects such as the mental health of the employee. This is not necessarily a reflection on them specifically, but rather on society that does not have mental health as its focus. Now, Nicole, in what ways can a working environment be modified, um, making it conducive to uh, the promotion of good mental health among employees? Um, Examples of this would include um, flexible working hours, um, introducing tasks incrementally after an employee has been on sick leave, creating a quiet work environment, change of supervisor if required, and reassignment of employee to an alternative post if necessary. Um, Programs can also be run to educate managers and employees, and policies can be put in place to promote good mental health. Now, do most employees feel comfortable enough in a, in, in the workspace in addressing mental illness or mental health issues with their employers? Um, no. Um, actual perceived stigma is rife in the work, workplace. Um, according to a recent study ca- carried out by the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, um, only one in six employees indicated that they would readily disclose a mental health illness to a manager. And why is that the case? Did they manage to Um, find out or get any details? um, Not as far as I know from that particular study, but what I can imagine is that um, what research has shown, um, rather, is that um, when employees feel that if they disclose their um, mental illness, they may be subject to things like micromanagement, um, suspicion, um, possibly... um, you know, um, leading them down the road towards, um, you know, um, being um, marginalized and gossiped about by their fellow employees, etc. Now, Nicole, does that go back to the issue of uh, creating a, a, a 
a conducive environment or a healthy environment or workplace where if an employee is able to speak to their manager or not able to speak to their manager without having the fear of their manager giving that information away to their colleagues, is that the sort of environment when you say, um, um, you know, environments that are not uh, user-friendly or worker-friendly? Yes, that's, uh, that's exactly it. Um, an environment where there is um, a culture of um, people um, fearing discrimination, fearing reprisal for disclosing a mental illness, yes. And then on the wellness side, um, you mentioned earlier on when we started our chat that uh, um, the, the training and development of uh, whether management or, or supervisors, that's where it's very, very critical to ensure that the environment is uh, conducive for, for um, every worker. Yes, that, um, that is very true. Um, you know, because uh, a lot of... Um, a lot of the discrimination that takes place in the workplace isn't um, born out of malice. It's born out of, um, you know, people just simply not knowing and not understanding, um, you know, the nature of mental illness or the nature of the need to um, provide their employees with psychosocial support. Nicole, very quickly, just in wrapping up, what would you say to um, managers or companies that are listening right now with regards to uh, mental health in the workplace or wellness in the workplace? Um, I I would say that um, the need to take care of your employees cannot be um, overstated. Um, You see, um, if employees are... um, functioning well, um, you know, from a psychosocial perspective. Um, Productivity will be increased, there will be less absenteeism, um, the workplace will be safer, there will be less money lost due to sick days. There are so many advantages for um, employees. But um, most of all, the biggest um, advantage, the biggest necessity is that um, it's necessary in our constitutional democracy to treat people with dignity and to uh, treat people equally and to treat people fairly. And, um, you know, therefore, um, to promote corporate wellness is not simply, um, you know, something that's optional. It's actually fast becoming an imperative. And so um, to employees, I would say, um, you know, um, make sure that your employees are healthy and are happy and, um, you know, it'll be advantageous to everyone all around. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you. That's Nicole Breen, Project Leader for Information and Awareness at the South African Federation for Mental Health, joining us on the line. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Libyan commander Khalifa Haftar has declared victory against rivals, including local fighters and jihadists in the city of Derna. Ghana's president, Nana Akufado, has fired the head of the country's electoral commission for misbehavior and incompetence. And European Union leaders have struck a deal on migration after Italy threatened to block an agreement until it got more help on the issue. Those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you, Anne. A top Russian diplomat has expressed hopes that the summit between the presidents of Russia and the United States next month will be the beginning of a new relationship between the two countries. Russia's ambassador to the United Nations says the meeting in the main would be devoted to the state of a two nations strained bilateral relations and various other geopolitical concerns, particularly in the Middle East and elsewhere. The White House and the Kremlin earlier confirmed that the long-anticipated summit between Presidents Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump would take place on July the 16th in Helsinki. Finland, show and Bryce Peace reports. This was my opening exchange with Ambassador Vasily Nebenzia. Listen. There is a World Cup final on July 15th. There is another final of sorts on July 16th in Helsinki, Finland. I know it's not on your agenda, but what can you tell us about this summit, Mr. President? And what sort of outcomes is it that Russia is seeking from that meeting between President Trump and President Putin? Indeed, on the July 15th, uh, there will be a final of the World Cup in Moscow. Uh, may the best team win. Uh, but I hope that on July 16th, it won't be the final. It will be just the beginning, uh, a long-awaited one. Indeed, the, uh, the announcement of, on the meeting of the presence of Russia in the United States has been, has been uh, published today. The meeting will take place in Helsinki. Uh, I'm not aware very, very well about the agenda of the meeting. I think it's still being worked out. But I think that primarily it will be devoted to the, to the state of our bilateral relations, uh, which, is, uh, which, is, which is to be, to be, to be desired to be much better, uh, if I put it very mildly. He said they would likely touch on situations in Syria, the Iran nuclear deal which the U.S. recently walked away from, other regional issues and Russia's annexation of Crimea in Ukraine. I believe that the meeting that is of course long overdue uh, is finally uh, in the process of the preparation and even, and even announced, which means that it will happen, uh, is, uh, is in a way... On the one hand, the realization by the American administration that uh, uh, we indeed uh, need to talk on many issues. And this is not just just the wish of the two countries, but this is the, the, the wish of the world, as I said. It, it's not needed just for two of us, but, but for the rest of the world, because when uh, we are in agreement on something, the rest of the world breathes, breathes better. Ambassador Nabenzia also didn't shy away from the domestic, political and legal dynamics playing themselves out in the United States as investigations into allegations of Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election and possible collusion with the Trump campaign continue to play out. We know uh, how difficult it is for President Trump himself was to go about that meeting, given the domestic domestic developments in the country, which are not over yet, as we know. Uh, President Trump always spoke and continues to speak about his willingness to uh, to promote good relations with Russia, which is good for the United States, which is good for Russia, and which is good for the world. And uh, we are we I, I can only say that uh, we we. Uh, uh, we welcome that uh, he finally made that decision. It was preceded by a visit by the National Security Advisor to Moscow, who is, who is, uh, uh, who is one in the American administration that still remembers how to interact intergovernmentally. Pointing out that the meeting next month would need to be followed up by intense dialogue throughout the levels of government on both sides for the relationship to move forward and improve. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Pease in New York. 
A FIFA World Cup has caused thousands of football fans from across the globe to descend on Russia in support of their national teams. And with the arrival of the fans, Russians are being exposed to cultures from across the globe on a level potentially never experienced before. An interracial reggae duo who live in St. Petersburg Russia's second-largest city are using this moment of cultural fusion to bring reggae to the country. The BBC's Ashley John Baptista went to meet with them. Wild and free tonight, gonna live my life, live it up tonight. Arisha and Shelke are reggae artists and a couple who live in St. Petersburg. Arisha is a white woman, Shelke is a black Jamaican. They've been performing at parties held for football fans. They see the World Cup as a chance to introduce Russians to reggae music and have even written a reggae-themed World Cup song. A lot of Russians will not have heard reggae music before. How are they responding to your sound and to reggae music? They ask what it is. First of all, they say, what kind of music is that? What style? Even people who do listen to music, they just say, what is it? What, what you guys... It's just so cool. They love it. There's a little niche market that knows... Reggae music. They know Bob Marley and they know a few people from there, right? But most of people don't. Yeah, At so the same time, you know, they, they don't know who Bob Marley is. No. You know, it's you know, it is true. You know, it's hard to believe. In terms of you as a black man and a reggae mm-hmm. artist, how are Russians responding? Well, I can speak for me and what I've seen for the past, since 2014, I've been coming here and I, I never experienced racism, none of that, none of, nothing like that. So you don't feel like you're negatively judged by people in Russia for being an interracial couple? No. Yeah, people come up to us all the time you know? and say, yeah, you guys are the most beautiful couple I've ever seen. Yeah. Let me just take in place over. Take in place over. But there have been reports and serious concerns of racism in Russia in the lead-up to the World Cup. And for some black people here, racism is very real. The presence of international fans, however, is exposing Russians to different cultures from across the globe. So Arisha and Shalke, who we met earlier, are about to go and perform their reggae-themed World Cup song at a party here in St. Petersburg. And I'm really excited and interested to see how people from Russia respond to their performance as well as the international fans. We met some young Russians who were excited to hear reggae music. Do people in Russia know about reggae music? Yes, but I think it's uh, not so popular like pop music or hip hop music or any or any rock music. Talk to me about the reggae that you saw tonight. They're cool. I like the music because it's really like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it's kind of relaxed, maybe I don't know. Yeah, they're cool. I like them. Arisha believes that it's this very interaction with foreign cultures that will help reduce the level of prejudice and issues like racism in Russia. But I think lots of time hostility comes from fear, you know. So I think this exposure with the World Cup and with exposure to reggae music and to us kind of mends that gap, you know. It takes that fear away and brings that oh, it's okay, you know, it's okay to talk and have fun together, you know. This person is not here to threaten me, you know, they're actually here to have fun.
That report by the BBC's Ashley John Baptista. Abari, etise, mache, mingabu, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. It's 8.40 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Ambassadors of an initiative aimed at raising funds for vulnerable communities in South Africa, the school sleepout movement, are participating on a boot camp today in Johannesburg to prepare for the campaign, which take place, takes place on the 18th of next month, observed as International Mandela Day. The project, which sees participants sleeping outside, seeks to also raise awareness of the plight and injustice of homelessness. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Kim Curran, Principal for the School Sleep Art Movement. Good morning, Kim, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Hi, Lily. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Kim, this this always happens in like every year. In which way does this initiative raise funds? So there's basically um, different elements to the CEO Sleep Out. So the main CEO Sleep Out is the main event where we have the CEO Sleep Out for a night, um, and that is where we raise funds that support um, our different beneficiaries. Then another leg of it is the school sleepout, which is aimed at all the schools across the country. And here it's not so much about raising money, it's more about raising items. We have our wish list, which this year, because obviously it's for Nelson Mandela and he was all about education, we've got satellite beneficiaries around the country that we ask the schools to support. And then we raise items from these wish lists, which are things like stationary care packs, food packs, um, items like that that are really needed for under-resourced schools, which then get donated to these under-resourced schools um, after they sleep out. So it's a lovely way of giving back and helping those less fortunate. Now, in terms of uh, you know the, the inception, you mentioned the different uh, activities that you do. Now, does the campaign only target CEOs or can other interested people join? And how do the previous participants say the experience was for them? So this is open to everyone. Um, so another element we have is the South Africa Sleep Out, which is aimed at any South African um, in a group. So it could be your local sports club, your book club, any element like that, even your corporate. If you want to get a team of you know, your group in your company to sleep out, um, you can participate in a South Africa Sleep Out. So it really is open to everyone in the country to take part. Um, it's a really amazing initiative. I think until you've really spent a night outdoors with you know, no tents and nothing to, you know, protect you from the weather, you don't actually understand what it's like, especially in the middle of winter. Um, And the feedback, you know, from school learners as as young as six years old up to the CEOs of however old, all say that, you know, at midnight there's something that really special happens to you when, you know, everything is switched off, it's you and the weather, there's nothing else. And it's really a, a time for reflection and it really makes you realize how, it's how important it is to help those less fortunate, you know, than us. You know, we should uh, spend one night outdoors 
to gain empathy for homeless people. They're people that are doing it every single night. So for us, it's really about, you know, trying to help those and, and you know, make a small change, you know, as much of a change as one can do. Kim, there's always, with something positive, there's always some sort of criticism that comes with it. And speaking of the right. homeless, um, you mentioned that, uh, you know, at, at, at midnight, something changes or the mindset changes. Now, the criticism that uh, this initiative is, uh, you know, it says that it's, it's condescending for the poor and the homeless um, and that uh, there are many other ways of raising funds but this. What's your take to that? What do you say to what do you, How do you respond to that? Sure, Lily. You know, I think for us it's always about a matter of doing something. I think it's very easy for people to sit back and criticize who don't do anything. And this is one avenue that we look at of trying to make a change. Um, you know, the COC part on a whole is the biggest philanthropic initiative in the African continent. Over the last three years, they have raised more than 50 million rand that has been donated to our different, different beneficiaries. No other organization has raised that amount of money. So, you know, although there is criticism and they say, you know, you're mocking the homeless or, you know, things like that, it's basically about gaining empathy. It's a philanthropic initiative and it's about spending one night outdoors to understand what it feels like. And I think as long as people are doing something to make a difference, I don't see why that should be criticized. You know, this is one way we going about it. And we, we love people that have different ideas and how they think it should work. And, you know, we always open to, you know, chat to people and if they want to partner with us, for example. But I really think the difference is doing something. It's very easy to criticize, but I think until you're actually out there and trying to do something and make a difference, I don't think it's fair to, to criticize those that are trying to do something. Kim, unfortunately, we have run out of time. We'll leave it there for now. And all the best for this year's initiative. Thank you so much. That's Kim Curran, the principal for the school sleepout movement in South Africa, joining us on the line. It is 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Wisani Matebula. Good morning. Thanks, Lulu. Suspended South African Revenue Services Commissioner Tom Moyane has described the ongoing inquiry into the affairs of the Revenue Collection Agency as a witch hunt against him. Moyane will present his side of the story despite being not formally invited. Several former South executives have described how Moyane instilled fear in the organization. The commission hearings do not include Moyane on the witness list. His lawyer, Eric Mabuza, explains. It's important for Commissioner Moyani to protect his rights because as we see it, the commission is grossly unfair. It's a witch hunt. It's not aimed at finding the truth, but to lynch Mr. Moyani. Essentially, this is a commission to investigate into his governance at SARS, but he is not invited to the commission. He has not been contacted by the evidence leader to talk to him. One would have expected a commission of this nature to have engaged with Mr. Moyani to properly invite him to attend the inquiry. None of that has happened. And South African President Cyril Ramaphosa will lead a delegation that will attend the Southern African Customs Union Saki Summit in Khaburone, Botswana. The president will use uh, the gathering to meet the uh, SADC Secretariat to discuss the implementation of regional programs. Mbali Tetane reports. 
As heads of state meet here this morning, they are expected to receive the progress report on the SACO agreement. Deputy Director General of the Department of Trade and Industries, Kolelam Lumbi Peter, says in the previous summit, member states, which include South Africa, Swaziland, Botswana, Lesotho and Namibia, had agreed that there was a need to review the SACO agreement. The aim of the review is to facilitate the implementation of the development integration agenda. That development integration agenda entails um, really the implementation of cross-border projects. The summit will also be looking into adopting the rules of procedure. Bali Tetani, SABC News, Khabaroni in Botswana. And South African Finance Minister Antlantlanene says there's been some progress in heeding the call by President Cyril Ramaphosa to attract new investment. Nene was speaking to the media ahead of the roundtable discussion organized by the World Economic Forum. This is uh, indeed one of those building blocks towards task that um, the president uh, put on our shoulders when he announced um, that as government we are going to be building this investment book of a billion US dollars. Uh, Of course, you will have seen that in the past few days, some of those green shoots are beginning to come up uh, just on Monday. Late Monday, we welcomed um, one of our insurance companies, Old Mutual, back into our shores. Uh, bringing back about 10 billion and that reduces the 100 billion to 90 billion already. And uh, on Tuesday we were down in East London with the president at uh, Mercedes-Benz plant and uh, they also announced an expansion which is going to bring in um, 10 billion um, rands. Executive Director for the Trans-Kalahari Corridor, Les Limpofu, says there's a need for increased safety and security for truckers since uh, critical trade roads are now targeted for service delivery protests. He was speaking at the Trans-Kalahari Corridor Conference held in Rustenburg in the Northwest Province with the aim of improving trade relations between Namibia, South Africa and Botswana. Uh, let us avoid to, to, to destroy the road infrastructure, to block the roads, and because this it is it does not only deter trade, but it's also dangerous even to those people that are doing the product. Some of, some of this um, cargo that is moving on the corridor is dangerous goods. Financial indicators uh, the dollar at uh, 10.17, Botswana Pula 9.95, Zambian Kwacha, BRICS currencies, the dollar trading at 3.82 Brazilian Real, 63.13 Russian Ruble, at 68.59 Indian Rupee, at 6.59 Chinese Yuan, and at 13.69 South African Rand. European currencies, uh, it's at 75 pence to the British pound and 86 cents against the euro. Commodities, gold, $1,252. Platinum, $853 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil, $77.42 per barrel. And that's how it's looking. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. So Figile, today is a rest day. There's no football, no World Cup football. Yeah, no. Well, today it's 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 the day when they say relax, go get something for the forthcoming days. Starting from tomorrow again, you will be on the edge of your seat throughout. What else is going on? Uh, Serena, she's got drama with. Uh, yeah, with the, the tennis association. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have Usada, but also we in, in Africa we have the rugby. Oh no, the Sikafa Cup, Kagame Cup in in Rwanda, and also rugby union in the eastern side of Africa. Uh-huh. Ooh, that's what is happening. The Super Rugby comes back again after the tests 
between England and, and, and South Africa all, all over the world as well. So uh, those are some of the sports stories that are happening as we are uh, glued to our So it's TV still a bumper rugby. weekend. Oh, well, sport-wise it is, but obviously football is the top of all the, top the, of the tables. Yeah. <laughs> all right, give us an update. First up, Kenyan Premier League champions Gormahia will after all travel for the Sikafa Kagame Cup in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania today after their league clash against Sunny Sugar in Kisumu. This follows the club's management and players coming to a common ground following a tiff over unpaid allowances that saw the players fail to train on Wednesday. The players were lamenting over what is owed to them after their qualification to the CAF Confederations Cup group stages as well as what they termed as meager allowances for their Sport Pesa Super Cup win. And Senegal coach Ali Sisse says the country's commitment to producing winning World Cup performances ultimately cost them dearly as they became the first side in tournament history to be eliminated by the fair play regulations. Senegal lost 1-0 to Colombia last night and finished third in Group H level on points and goal difference with Japan, but below them because they collected two more yellow cards. Sisse says they had been well aware of the rules and that they had to be respected. Sisse says they are all disappointed. Tonight we're all disappointed. We expected to go through. It's a shame to concede that goal. We were having a good game, mostly in the first half. We had chances, but we missed them. Tonight Colombia had to win, and that's what they did. Congratulations to them. And Colombia coach Jose Peckerman admitted his side had been fortunate after a 1-0 win against Senegal sealed their place in the last 16 of the World Cup. Defender Yeri Mina headed home the decisive goal from a 74th minute corner to ensure Colombia finished top of Group H after Japan's 1-0 defeat to Poland. Pegaman says he respects Senegal for their fighting spirit. That's why we were here today, to move on to that next phase. It wasn't easy against a tough opponent such as Senegal, who made us struggle. They played great football and we responded with a goal and victory. Los Cafetarios will now play England, who finished second behind Belgium in Group G on Tuesday. And Zimbabwe National Rugby 30-man squad has arrived in Nairobi ahead of their Saturday's clash against host Kenya at the Rugby Football Union of East Africa, the RFUEA ground. The squad comprises of 25 players and five officials led by former South African coach Peter de Villiers. The team conducted a closed-door training session on Thursday before having to fill the match day venue during their captain's run at the RFU ground. Our Kenyan correspondent Francis Motegi reports. Since first meeting in 1981, Kenya and Zimbabwe have shared some great memorable moments on the rugby pitch. This rivalry will be reignited on Saturday when the Simbas host the Sabos at Nairobi Sarafua ground. Overall, the two sides have met 19 times with Zimbabwe Sabos dominating the head-to-head, posting 12 wins to the Zimbas 7. Most recent tests between the two sides, though, have gone in favor of the Simbas and with record scores. In the last meeting on 9th of July 2016, hosts Zimbabwe were humbled 15-461 at police grounds Harare. And finally, former Wimbledon runner-up Eugenie Bouchard successfully negotiated the qualifying draw, beating Colombian Mariana Duque Marino 6-3-6-2 to secure a spot in next week's main draw. 
Meanwhile, Australian Bernard Tomich, a quarter-finalist at Wimbledon in 2011, will not feature this year after he lost 6-3, 6-1 and 6-2 in the final round of qualifying to Belgium's Ruben Belmamans. Russia's Vera Zvonareva, runner-up to Serena Williams in 2010, was also one match away from qualifying as she took on American Caroline Dolihide on Thursday. That's a sport news this hour. Channel Africa brings you wall-to-wall coverage of the 2018 FIFA World Cup Finals in Russia. Visit our dedicated World Cup page on www.channelafrica.org.za for in-depth coverage which includes previews, reviews, analysis, breaking news and podcasts of latest interviews. We will also bring you the very latest news from Russia with our Nigerian correspondent, Tony Ubani, and the BBC's reporters in our daily hourly sports bulletins and on the Africa at Play sports show on Friday, Saturday and Sunday from 5pm to 6pm Central African time. Channel Africa, your home of the 2018 FIFA World Cup Finals. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sour African leaders gather in Mauritania for AU Summit. Tanzania and Zimbabwe vow to strengthen bilateral relations. And Interpol calls for strong coalition against international terror. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine this week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers... Pumuzo Ramagaza and Komuzo Mopulane, technical producer Revelina Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327 or tweet us at Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Lucky Dube with a song titled Respect.